Hello, welcome to the Africa Climate Conversation podcast. I am your host, Sophie Mbogwa. As I promised you last week, we are starting a new series looking into communities and how they are adapting to climate change. So this week we are starting from a village called Ngoilale village in Masai Mara, Narok West in Kenya. This is a county that hosts the Masai Mara National Park where you get to witness the wild beast migration every year. For ages, the Maasai people roamed and grazed their livestock. They moved long distances in search of water and pasture. The land was communally owned and shared with the wild animals. But over the years, the need to access education, healthcare, and other services has forced them to adopt a sedentary lifestyle, settling in one area. The sedentary lifestyle has seen the communally owned land subdivided into individual shares. Balancing the need to keep large herds of livestock, protecting the traditional wildlife migratory corridors, and adopting new food production methods has raised a conflict challenge. Most of the Maasai landscape is arid and semi-arid. In most cases, both people, their livestock, and the wild animals share the same water resources. Now, with drought periods becoming frequent and more prolonged, competition kicks in during the dry season as both meet at the watering points. So the wild animals will kill people and the humans retaliate, killing these animals. Now, to minimize this conflict, with the help of the County Development Fund, Community Contribution, and well wishes from the Netherlands, a community at the Ngoilale village in Masai Mara, Narok West, this neighboring the Masai Mara National Park, conserved natural springs located in a communal conservancy. They build a 100,000 liter underground tank where the water accumulates before it's pumped into another outer tank. From this tank, it's then pumped by gravity 13 kilometers into the villages, and some of this water is directed to open wells where wild animals quench their thirst from. Around the tank, they planted bushes and trees, then protected the land by registering it into a conservancy. Governed by the traditional rules, no one is allowed to cut a tree or graze there. Here is Nelson Ole Kirokol, the Ngolale Community Development Organization Manager, on why it was necessary to protect the springs. Before we protected the spring, we used to go down to the, our seasonal rivers and uh, we scoop the sun and wait for a, a few hours for the water to accumulate and that is the water we use. And after we leave the spot, the elephants at night, of course, came to the same spot, buffaloes, even hyenas. So they urinate there, they also poop there. And then the following day in the morning, that's the same water that you're going to, to take. So the, the, the waterborne diseases were very high during that time. And it was also very risky because uh, if people are many going to the same spot fetching water, uh, it takes really long. And uh, we've, we've realized a lot of the people who are really encountering, encountering elephants and other dangerous game as they wait for the water to accumulate. People can wait up to 8 p.m., which is quite dark. But um, what can you do? You don't have water for cooking. You don't have water for drinking. So you have to wait. So it's actually a need-driven 
why we protected the spring. Olakirokol organization is working with uh, Ngolale communities to improve access to clean water, education, healthcare, as well as community empowerment. The community is surrounded by six wildlife conservancies in the Maasai Mara National Park. In a world where boreholes yield salty water, about 7,000 people depend on these springs for clean water. Every household contributed either a goat, a sheep, or 3,000 Kenya shillings for this infrastructure. They access clean pipe water a day at 100 shillings monthly fee that goes into maintaining this infrastructure. But despite the protecting these springs, Ngolale Community Development Organization Chairman John Olempoi says water is still not enough for both humans and wildlife. We have done 13 kilometers down villages there. People are accessing clean water. But uh, we have not reached our challenge of our problem because uh, the population of, uh, of community is increasing day by day and the pressure of water is now reducing. So we still have that problem of water. Uh, human and wildlife uh, conflict has not been solved because actually we still all depend on the, on the same springs. But actually, when we done the, the protection of the spring, we left some, some ice where the flows of water can go to wildlife. But actually, still uh, following where the human are accessing the, the, their watering points like elephants, they come down to where, where people are fetching water, and uh, we still have that problem. Okay. In the past, water was not a big problem because uh, even though we have two major rivers here, one is called Onmerui, and we have Talek River, all are seasonal rivers, but actually because they owe a lot of sands, that sands will, uh, uh, will catch a lot of water that can never dry up. When, when the dry spell comes, we, you, just, uh, you just scoop the sand and get water inside. Now we have a big problem that are affecting the, these rivers. There is uh, sand collection. It has become a commercial to some uh, young men who are doing that uh, commercial, I mean selling the, the sands to people from Narok or other urban towns and uh, they affected terribly the rivers and uh, immediately after the rains goes, the water disappeared. So it has become a big challenge and the protection of the spring that I've talked about uh, is not enough to the, to the whole community. Even so we get some uh, drilling of uh, some boreholes, but actually they are still not, not enough to the whole community. Mm. Some other areas are in need of water. Narok County is among Kenya's top five counties with the highest reported incidences of human-wildlife conflict. The county supports about 30% of all Kenya's wildlife, most occurring on private and communal land, and wildlife conservancies outside the state-protected Masai Mara National Reserve. A 2019 report on human-wildlife conflicts and their linkages in Narrow County records that from 2001 to 2017, the county experienced nearly 14,000 conflict incidences involving 13 wildlife species. The elephant contributed nearly 50%, while the leopard, the spotted hyena, and the lion jointly contributed 16.4% of all reported conflict cases. Crop raiding reported 50%, attacks on humans contributed nearly 30%, and livestock attack contributed almost 20% of the cases. 
But apart from the water challenges, what else causes human wildlife conflicts? I pose this question to Yusuf Aden, a National Wildlife Program Manager at the World Wildlife Fund, WWF, and this is what he had to say. Water is very, very critical in terms of uh, causing human-wildlife conflict. But uh, water is just one of the issues that causes human-wildlife conflict. Human-wildlife conflict is much, much more complex than that. Um, there are a number of reasons why um, human-wildlife conflict happens. Maybe just to give you a general idea of uh, why, why human-wildlife conflict is becoming a big issue, even more than, uh, you know, sometimes wildlife crime or poaching, which is uh, in most times highlighted uh, uh, in most of the platforms and, and media. Um, one reason is because, uh, of course, human population is increasing. Um, wildlife population at the same time is increasing because of all the conservation efforts that are uh, going on. And uh, because human and wildlife share the same space, um, for, for humans, they will need that space for, for different things. They, they would need it for settlement, uh, they would need it for, you know, different uh, land uses to uh, support their livelihood. For instance, agriculture, uh, for countries like Kenya, which are now um, developing, uh, you would see things like infrastructure, whether this is roads or uh, railways, or um, even um, uh, dams, etc, uh, etc. Et so different types of um, infrastructure because of countries developing. And uh, for, from wildlife perspective, uh, there are some migratory species which would require to move uh, from one area to another. Uh, some species require huge spaces. Um, maybe just to give you an example, um, elephants, for instance, would require huge space because they, they require a lot of food per day. Uh, another elephant would require about 300 kilograms of food every day. They would uh, require water um, every day or once, you know, uh, on alternate days. Uh, they, they also have to migrate from one area to another, depending on uh, uh, the climatic conditions and, uh, you know, the weather patterns and uh, rainfall patterns and so on and so forth. Some of these animals uh, have traditional routes for migration. Um, and I'm still talking about elephants. Uh, they usually use specific routes to migrate from one area to another, um, uh, you know, seasonally. And if these developments, whether it is agriculture or it is uh, infrastructure blocks, their traditional migratory corridors, uh, then what you, you get is uh, basically human wildlife conflict. And uh, in the process, um, of course, people's properties are destroyed, whether it is crop destruction. Uh, in extreme cases, uh, people lose their lives or they, they get injured. And uh, elephants also get killed in the process. So the major, major driver is uh, on the wildlife side is uh, this habitat loss, loss of dispersal areas, loss of corridors. And then uh, uh, basically it is uh, the competition between development and conservation, if I would call it that. Um, and then uh, the other major driver is uh, lack of land use planning. Because if, uh, you know, there is clear land use planning, uh, there is clear zoning where wildlife migratory corridors are zoned and protected, where areas which are arable and good for agriculture are set aside for agriculture, but measures are taken to ensure that uh, either these crops are protected by 
you know, um, surrounding it with some electric fence uh, around their boundaries. It allows wildlife to, to pass through without uh, destroying these crops um, and also organizing where infrastructure is uh, supposed to happen, depending on which infrastructure um, we are talking about, whether it's roads or uh, settlement, etc. If land use planning is done very, very well, um, I think uh, to a large extent, human-wildlife conflict um, uh, could be resolved. However, uh, there are issues of uh, climate change as well. Uh, we know that uh, we are experiencing frequent and prolonged droughts than we used to experience in the past. Um, and this, of course, then causes uh, uh, insufficient uh, forage for wildlife, um, inadequate water for wildlife even in big protected areas. Just to give you an example, um, when you look at Savo Conservation Area, it's about uh, 40,000 square kilometers, um, and uh, it has only about uh, 12,000 or, or so elephants uh, now. Uh, in the 1970s, uh, when you look back, yeah, Savo Conservation Area had about 40,000 elephants, and uh, you know it was able to sufficiently provide for that number of elephants. And the reason is because um, there, there weren't as much, you know, uh, frequent and prolonged droughts uh, as we are experiencing now. Uh, but with uh, 12,000 elephants now, you would uh, um, hear that Savo Conservation Area actually tops in terms of uh, the incidences of human wildlife conflict. Um, in a year, you know, about 10 people could be trampled by elephants. Uh, not because the size of that protected area has uh, reduced, but because of the impacts of climate change. And um, uh, in the past, there used to be about uh, three rivers which are, you know, permanently flowing, flowing in that ecosystem. Uh, we have the Galana River, we have the Chiva River, and we have the Voy River. Um, and in Savo West, there is uh, the Savo River which joins uh, to Galana River. And these these rivers were permanent and. Uh, for water-dependent animals like elephants. I mean, they have uh, plenty of water and they have uh, enough space uh, where they can be able to roam around and forage. But now, uh, out of all those rivers, there is only one permanent uh, river that remains, which is Galana. The rest of the rivers are either perennial and some of them only flow during heavy rainy season, like Voi River. Uh, the reason is because, uh, first of all, impact of climate change, we do not receive as much rainfall as we used to receive in the past, but also the impact of um, uh, anthropogenic factors, you know, water over abstraction upstream uh, because of uh, unsustainable agriculture that is happening around these rivers, a lot of siltation getting to these rivers, um, and also uh, most often we see uh, sand harvesting happening in these rivers, etc., etc. And because of all these challenges, um, uh, around some uh, rivers you would see, for instance, uh, uh, you know, horticulture coming up, and uh, a lot of these uh, agriculture are unsustainable, requires a lot of water, and most of the time happens in arid and semi-arid area, in environment which is not even meant for agriculture in the first place. All these um, challenges uh, compound the problem of uh, human-wildlife conflict. But, but Yusuf, is there a solution to human-wildlife conflict? There is no, um, you know, one solution to this problem. Um, like uh, 
you know, different organizations are now trying to look at what are you know holistic framework that can be able to address uh, human wildlife conflict and um, one of the framework that is being used uh, um, by WWF and other organizations in uh, Asia and in other parts of the world and which has uh, proven to be fairly successful is an approach we call the safe system approach and um, uh, the difference between this approach and um, a lot of other approaches that have been used in the past is that uh, previously uh, people look at uh, human wildlife conflict as uh, uh, you know something that you can react to. Uh, an elephant leaves a protected area, uh, it goes to a water point close to a protected area where communities live, uh, then what, what uh, conservation organization will do is either translocate that elephant or send uh, a response team to basically drive the elephant back to to the protected area. Um, the, or um, there is a lot of farming, uh, I mean, crops destroyed by wildlife. Um, then quickly organizations will put uh, an electric fence and it is assumed that now that problem is, is solved. Uh, but uh, um, when you look at it uh, deeply, that is basically treating the symptoms of the problem and not treating the drivers of the problem. Uh, and what I mean in this case is uh, there are uh, different interventions that can be applied in different human wildlife conflict incidences depending on the nature of that conflict. If one is able to understand, you know, holistically the whole human wildlife conflict system in a landscape. Uh, what I mean with that is if you're looking at a narrow landscape, which uh, we are talking about today, uh, there are areas where, for instance, uh, interventions which prevent human wildlife conflict, like electric fences or, uh, you know, proper land use planning or conservation education might work very well. There are other areas where effective response to conflicts might work very well. Um, and there are other incidences where what you need is mitigation. Basically, um, you know, giving communities, for instance, an alternative, alternative livelihood that is compatible with wildlife, like for example, beekeeping or uh, uh, cultivating crops that um, uh, are not uh, um, palatable to wildlife, uh, or maybe giving a consolation or insurance schemes, those kind of things. Uh, there are other solutions which might lie in the policy. And however much uh, response or effective response that you have at the landscape level, if you are not able to resolve uh, the weaknesses in uh, wildlife policies or in, in um, you know, other policies that are related to wildlife, like forestry policies or uh, water resource management policies, then you might not uh, resolve that problem. Um, just to give you one example of uh, how a policy can be able to resolve uh, human wildlife conflict in some instances, uh, in Kenya, all county governments are supposed to be um, doing their special plans by law. They are supposed to um, look at the whole you know, county and be able to zone uh, uh, the county depending on the different land uses that are most appropriate for different areas within the county. And what uh, happens in uh, that kind of policy 
is that uh, uh, there is clear zoning of uh, where protected areas are supposed to be, very clear zoning of where agriculture is supposed to happen, uh, very clear zoning of where settlements are supposed to happen, etc. And once that is done, then you are able to preempt the human wildlife conflict situation that would have arisen because of uh, maybe people settling in uh, the wrong places, in dispersal areas, corridors, or uh, uh, maybe wildlife uh, being, I mean, a protected area being established in an area which is favorable for agriculture. So able to preempt that and you are able to organize uh, the landscape so that it is, uh, you know, uh, reducing human-wildlife conflict, but you get the optimum production from different sectors that uh, you are interested in. And then uh, the other aspect that is uh, very critical is uh, understanding the conflict itself. Uh, it is very important to understand which species causes uh, this uh, conflict. Uh, in Narok, for instance, uh, uh, lion and uh, elephants are, you know, the top uh, two species that are uh, causes conflict depending on which area you're looking at. If you're looking at Transmara area, then uh, you need to look at uh, human wildlife conflict interventions that will address elephants specifically because that is where uh, Nyakweri forest is and that is uh, a favorable uh, area for elephants in general. But it's also an area where communities do or practice agriculture as a form of livelihood. But if you go uh, towards Siana uh, uh, area or um, uh, around Oldekesi, Kikorok, etc., the conflict that you are supposed to be addressing is mostly predation because that is area which is favorable for lions and there are specific um, interventions which are more effective for lion. There are others which are more effective for elephants and therefore understanding which species you are dealing with, but also for these species, understanding their behavior, are they migratory species, their habitat use, um, you know, what kind of home ranges do they have, uh, their distribution patterns, uh, where are they found uh, most in, even in, within that landscape because uh, uh, species also choose, uh, you know, different habitats depending on uh, their ecological needs. Um, and then finally, uh, there needs to be a very clear monitoring and evaluation mechanism so that uh, one or conservation institution or uh, wildlife managers should be able to look at their data and look at uh, human wildlife conflict patterns, know which seasons these uh, conflicts occur, uh, in which areas do they occur, and what kind of interventions have worked and which ones have not worked. So, um, uh, taking you back to safe system approach. Uh, this approach looks at all these human wildlife conflict uh, uh, causes and consequences in a holistic way and tries to address the drivers of this conflict. So it's not just enough to look at uh, water, it's not just enough to look at uh, corridors. Uh, it is very important that you have a holistic approach and also sometimes uh, uh, the solutions of this human wildlife conflict might not be necessarily the very expensive methods that you know we run to immediately that we see conflict happening uh, because of uh, being reactionary to the conflict mitigation. 
uh, I'll give you an example of um, how uh, monitoring and evaluation and analysis of data becomes very critical in uh, solving human wildlife conflict. Um, so um, the conservation organization uh, in Savo Conservation Area, the Kenya Wildlife Service and uh, different organizations came together recently and they were looking at, uh, you know, human wildlife conflict data and specifically um, human elephant conflict. And uh, they analyzed the data of, uh, you know, human uh, death cases to understand uh, uh, where do these uh, deaths occur caused by elephants, uh, what time uh, does it occur, uh, and under what circumstances it has happened. And they realized that most of these cases, almost, you know, over 60-70% of these cases are either people who are going home very late in the night or people who are, you know, basically uh, they've gone to bars, uh, they are drunk and therefore they are walking back home or even uh, coming back from bars which are located very close to wildlife uh, corridors and dispersal areas, elephant corridors and dispersal areas. So the intervention they took is basically inform the communities who live around these protected areas using uh, local FM radios um, because you know they have uh, these aerial patrols that happens within uh, uh, these conservation areas. So every time uh, a plane goes up and it is able to spot a herd of elephant close to uh, community settlement, they would be able to broadcast this information uh, on local radio. And immediately the communities who listen to these local uh, FM radios are able to get, you know, warning in advance and uh, either change their route or, uh, you know, uh, stay wherever they are until the herd of elephant moves away from uh, uh, the, the routes that they are going to use. The other intervention is basically to close the, the bars, which are located in the wrong places, uh, close to elephant corridors. And because of that, then people can, you know, enjoy their drinks, but in places which are very far and safe from uh, human wildlife conflict. And these are very simple and cost-effective ways of dealing with human wildlife conflict. But again, if you are not able to drill down to your data and analyze, then it becomes, uh, you know, impossible for uh, one to be able to, to realize that uh, the solution could just be, you know, moving a location of a bar or uh, informing people in advance so that they can be able to be aware that uh, certain routes are not safe at certain times of the day. For now, Ngoilale community is spending between 30,000 to 40,000 shillings monthly to maintain the water infrastructure. Nelson and his team are advising their communities to invest in harvesting rainwater once it rains and also talking to well-wishers to rehabilitate their infrastructure. Join me again next week as we take another journey into understanding how communities are solving their climate-related challenges. Do not forget to subscribe to this podcast and also following us on Twitter and Facebook. We are finally on Twitter and Facebook at Africa Climate Conversations. You can also listen to this podcast on our website, Africa Climate Conversations website. And remember, it's accessible on every podcast channel out there. That is from Google Podcast to Apple 
or Spotify, any other channel that you actually access your podcast from. Until next week, kwaheri, have yourself a productive and safe week ahead. Mm-hmm.